Good evening. It is good to see each one of you. If you're visiting with us, again, we welcome you. It encourages us to have you here, and we hope that we can be an encouragement to you. If you will be opening your Bibles to 1 Samuel, the 8th chapter, uh, we will not have the references and the uh, scriptures on the screen this evening, so be sure and take a Bible and turn there in your pew Bible. That'll be around page 250. We'll begin in 1 Samuel, the 8th chapter, and work through some things uh, in the, that chapter and the following chapters. Uh, I look forward to this coming Sunday uh, to be able to see name tags and to be able to put names with more faces and be able to do that with visitors. And what an encouragement that is going to be. Uh, so many have talked about how you wish you had it. And, uh, you know, we can wish for things and then we can do even better than that. We can pray for things. And what a blessing that's going to be. Be sure and participate in that. And you may say, you know, I really don't like to wear it. Keep in mind, you don't wear it for you. This is a great act of unselfishness. Uh, you're doing this for the other people. And so make sure that you practice Christianity and be unselfish and, uh, and, and participate in this. And those around you will appreciate it that are trying to get to know folks and those especially that are newer to the congregation that's trying to get to know folks. That will let them know that you want to get to know them. And so make sure that you participate in that. Do keep in mind the parking next Sunday. Uh, we uh, will not need to park in the parking area of the wedding chapel. Of course, the 2040 is mentioned, and then also in the senior citizens, fine. Keep in mind the new parking lot that's still under construction in the back is available, uh, but please avoid those few parking spaces there uh, beside the wedding chapel. We have had uh, a tremendous dinner Thursday evening. We appreciate Mark Rinks and the work that he does to help Heritage Christian and many in this congregation were a part of that. And it's wonderful when we have the opportunity to do good, to further uh, the teaching of individuals that are striving to prepare to go into ministry. And we're thankful for that work. Do keep in mind the newcomer Supper that will follow tonight's services. Keep in mind next Saturday morning, work day. Uh, many of you own your own homes. And you know that if you own property, there is continual maintenance that needs to be done. Many of you signed up for your SOS. Uh, some of you are being contacted, and if you're not contacted but you sign up, please keep your commitment there. Be sure uh, the, the sheets are in the foyer. Be sure you sign up tonight so the work can be organized of where you want to work. And if you haven't signed up for your SOS but you have some time Saturday morning and you'd like to be a part of that, please be sure and uh, go ahead and put your name down so that the work can be organized better. Uh, it takes a lot to keep a building and the grounds this size uh, taken care of and everybody doing their part. Many hands make light work. Uh, it's exciting to think that the Senior Recognition Sunday is next Sunday and our young men who are seniors in high school will be conducting the service next Sunday evening. And I'm sure that will be a blessing for us and we're thankful for all of our young people and we're prayerful and thankful for the ones who will be moving into a uh, transition in life very soon, and, and we want to encourage them in every way. When we think about role models and heroes, who comes to your mind? I would like to be like, who do you think about? Isn't it interesting how so oftentimes we base it on what we feel at the moment, and we base it on surface instead of on substance, and we base it on things that the reality is a few years later we'd say, oh, I would never want to be like him. You know, it's interesting that when USA Today and CNN and the Gallup organization at the end of each year, they do polls asking people to list 
the ten people or to list the people that they most admire. And then from that, they pull out the ten highest votings. Uh, they ask, who are your heroes or who do you admire the most? Let me give you a reading of a list. Number one on the list, George W. Bush. The first time ever, 39% voted him their hero. Highest ever. No one individual. Keep in mind, they're not giving a list of names and saying vote for these. They're walking up to people. They're calling people and they're saying, who do you most admire? George Bush was the highest. Who would be second? Laura Bush. Third, Hillary Clinton, Oprah Winfrey, Colin Powell, Rudy Giuliani, Pope John Paul II, Tony Blair, Michael Jordan, Madonna. Tells us our country, right? Now, some of you have already called on. From that list, you recognize that that was at the end of 2001. Many of those people would be way out of the top ten, if even mentioned, just a few years later. Why? We're quick to put somebody up as a hero and say, Oh, I love them. I'd like to be like them. I really admire them. Friends, I want to urge you tonight as we take a look of truly a hero. A hero that even God says, This man is a man after my own heart. And you'll notice that the things go far deeper than just the appearance and the physical things. As a matter of fact, when we compare how much time the Scripture spends on the man David, let me give you a comparison of a few. Abraham has 14 chapters written about him. Joseph, 13 chapters. Jacob, 11. Moses has 40 chapters written about him. But David has 66 chapters written about him and is referenced 57 times in the New Testament. Truly, this is a man that God wanted us to know much about him. Was he perfect? No. But did he have a good heart? That's what rings loud and clear through the Scriptures. Let's think about this man, and perhaps we'll appreciate him best if we compare him just for a few moments to the first king. How did we get into the situation in the children of Israel's life that we would even have a king? Because keep in mind, that wasn't God's plan. God's plan was to have judges. Notice with me, if you will, in 1 Samuel, the 8th chapter, we see in the first verse, Now it came to pass when Samuel was old that he made his sons judges over Israel. But in verse 3, his sons did not walk in his ways. Notice what they did. They turned aside after dishonest gain, took bribes, and perverted justice. Now, if you were citizens of that land, would you like people like that leading you? And so the elders got together and said, we're not going to stand for this anymore. Samuel was still alive. And so they had a conference with Samuel and said, we're going to talk about your sons being judges. And so we read that in verse 5. And he said to him, look, you are old and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now make us a king to judge us like all the nations. Now, my belief is that they highly respected Samuel. So when they said, you're old, it's not that they were disrespecting him. It was the reality that he's not going to live a lot longer and who is going to judge over us. In other words, Samuel, while you are still alive, while you still have influence in this land, we need to do something because of the fact you're old. 
But number two, we need to do something because your sons that you put in charge, they simply are not the leaders that this nation needs. But number three, not a very good reason at all. We've been looking at the heathen nations around us and they all have kings and we'd sure like to be a lot like them. When we think about our role models, do we think about the role models that are a lot like God or do we think about the role models that are a lot like the world? I need to be careful what I set my heart on. Now the rest of this chapter, God is going to have Samuel go back and tell the people, if you want a king, you get ready for all of these negative things. And if you still want a king, I'll give you a king. Samuel told them all the negative things. They still said they wanted a king. And so in the ninth chapter, we see the tribe of Benjamin is selected. We see the family is selected. And we see in the first verse that Alphia is selected to be the father who is the, he is a mighty man of power and it is his son that would become the king. Look at verse 2, ninth chapter and verse 2. And he had a choice and handsome son whose name was Saul. There was not a more handsome person than he among the children of Israel. From his shoulders upward, he was taller than all of the people. Friends, do you recognize the pedigree that this man has? He was the son of a mighty warrior. I mean, anyone that would look at his family and, and, and would reason and say, I tell you what, if he's his son, he's going to make a great king. Oh, and by the way, just look at him. It's obvious he's going to be a great king. He stands out in a crowd. Also, I don't know if even women can be more beautiful than he is. He's the most beautiful man. He's the most beautiful one in the children of Israel. This guy's head and shoulders above everybody else. He's the son of a warrior. He is going to be our king. Can you imagine how excited they must have been to have him as their king? Now, because tonight's lesson is primarily on David, we're going to pull out just one time in Saul's life. And if you would be turning with me to the 13th chapter. In the 13th chapter, Saul was facing a tremendous enemy. Do you see there in verse 5, it was the Philistines. And you know, many times we read numbers in the Bible and we don't really stop to think about it. Think how vast the Philistines were as their enemy in this setting. In verse 5, the Philistines gathered together to fight with Israel. 30,000 chariots. Can you imagine everybody, even babies, children, all adults being warriors who live in Mount Juliet and every one of them having a chariot. A chariot was a powerful weapon in their day and time. 30,000 chariots. Now as we read on, there was 6,000 horsemen and then the people, notice, as the sand did not even try to number the men that would be fighting on their feet because the number was so great. And they came and they surrounded them. And notice what happened in verse 6. When the men of Israel saw that they were in danger, for the people were distressed. Then the people hid in caves, in thickets, in rocks, in holes, in pits. Do you have a vision of this? A powerful enemy surrounding, distressed people hiding everywhere. Saul, he wants to make sure that he honors God. He wants to keep the offerings. But the high priest, the priest, the one that is to make the offering, is not there. So what is he to do? 
Notice what he finally concludes that he will do. Let's begin reading in 12. Then I said, the Philistines will now come down on me at Gilgal, and I have not made supplication to the Lord. Therefore, I felt compelled and offered a burnt offering. And Samuel said to Saul, you have done foolishly. You've not kept the commandment of the Lord your God, which he commanded you. For now the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now... Your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought for himself a man after his own heart. And the Lord has commanded him to be the commander over his people because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. How serious does the Lord take faithfulness? How serious does the Lord take the expectation of obedience? Here is a man that has the pressure of thousands and probably hundreds of thousands of enemies surrounding him. You can imagine it is the picking at the nails. It is the tapping of the foot. It's probably the pacing back and forth. Where is Samuel when I need him? We have to make this petition to God. We have to offer this burnt offering. Where is he? Where is he? Where is he? I tell you what, in serious circumstances like this, I feel compelled. That was the word. I feel compelled. God will surely understand. I'm going to offer the offering. How many times have we done things based upon our feeling very comfortable with it? I feel like God would understand. I feel like in a situation like this, I have no other choice. We do need a pure and a good conscience. But I need to realize even in the area of conscience, my feelings and even my conscience cannot be the standard of righteousness. Saul felt good about what he was doing, but he lost his kingdom, his reign over the kingdom because of what he did. Now, the reason we read that passage, you probably already noticed, is because he told Saul what kind of man he was looking for he told him that he was looking or seeking after a man after his own heart. Turn over a page, if you will, to the 16th chapter. When we look over to 1 Samuel, the 16th chapter, we see the anointing of David. As we see the anointing of David, we begin reading about a young man who is very humble. And we think about what kind of heart is it that is a heart that is after God's heart, a heart that he seeks after, what kind of heart is that? Humility. You and I can't oversell humility. You and I must understand the danger of pride. Here, we see God telling Samuel to go into town and to Bethlehem and to anoint one of Jesse's sons who he has chosen to be king. Now, at first, he's very concerned about this because Saul is very much still alive and in power. If he finds out, he would take my life, was Samuel's concern. Take a heifer with you, and as you go into town, let them know that you're there to make an offering. Friends, can you picture this? Can you picture an old priest, an old prophet coming into town? Can you picture him there maybe driving a heifer along, maybe leading the heifer along? He's looking for Jesse's house. Have you seen Jesse's house? Oh, Jesse. Jesse was concerned when he first saw him. 
He urged them to be at peace. What do you want? God wants me to look at your sons. We're going to anoint one of them king. Now when we look, he begins to bring sons before him. And see there in 6, he begins bringing uh, Elia. And then notice in 7, but the Lord said to Samuel, do not look at his appearance or at his physical stature because I have refused him. For the Lord does not see as man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. How do you choose your heroes? How do you choose your role models? How do you think about your own life? When you place expectations in your life, and you place goals and ambitions in your life, are they more about the outward person or are they more about the inward person? God doesn't look at people the same way that the nature of mankind looks at people. And so the first son, surely this is going to be him. No, God doesn't look at people the way we look at people. He looks at the heart. And so they begin running the sons through. And finally, Samuel has to go back in verse 11. And Samuel says to Jesse, are all the young men here? Now to me, this is most noteworthy. He's asked for him to bring all of his sons. And now all of the sons have passed. But yet God has not said, this is the one. Can you imagine? Can you imagine Samuel thinking, what's wrong here? Jesse, I want to go back and ask you again. Did you bring all of your sons here? Notice Jesse's answer in 11. He said, there remains yet the youngest. There he is keeping the sheep. Samuel said to Jesse, send and bring him, for we will not sit down until he comes. So he sent and he brought him in. Now he was ruddy with a bright eyes and good looking. And the Lord said, arise, anoint him for this is the one. Powerful. His own father overlooked him. You know, this morning we discussed what to me is sometimes a difficult time to preach. Because, you know, on Mother's Day and Father's Day, obviously we want to honor the design that God has given to the home. But, you know, not everybody came from a good home. Not everyone here this morning or everyone here tonight has had a good mother. Probably when we've just read that, there were some that that said, I can relate to a father like that. Oh, I'm not suggesting to you that Jesse was a horrible father, but... Isn't it interesting that he would overlook his youngest son when he was asked to bring all of his sons before Samuel? Maybe you say, I I felt like that. I felt that my family's overlooked me. I felt that good friends have overlooked me. You may have even thought, you know, I've been here in this congregation a long time and I just feel like nobody cares if I'm here. I feel like I'm overlooked. Friends, I want you to realize tonight that people's mistakes are just that. People's mistakes, but God makes no mistakes. He doesn't see the way man sees. God sees the heart. And if you're not receiving the honor that you are due from man, I can assure you that you're receiving the honor that's due from God. Because God sees the heart. He doesn't see what everybody else sees. So when David is brought before, 
God recognizes this humble young man. As a matter of fact, even to prove further that his family didn't always appreciate him, you remember when he goes before Goliath? And, and look with me now in the 17th chapter, and verse 28. We're back to that same, that brother Eliab. And notice, in, in this is when the Philistine giant Goliath had been challenging them for 40 days and the soldiers for Saul had been back literally trembling every time he would come out twice a day. And so David comes in and he can't stand the fact that God's army is being defied by the enemy of God. And so he begins to ask question, but now Eliab, verse 28, Eliab, his oldest brother, heard and when he spoke to the men, and Eliab's anger was aroused against David and he said, why did you come down here? And notice how he belittles him here. And with whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? Can you just hear an older brother saying that? Those few sheep. Where did you leave those few sheep? I trust that you left them in somebody's hands. We're out here doing men's work. We're out here risking our lives. Now keep in mind what they're really doing is they're really back here trembling like little girls every time the giant comes out. But he's got to talk big to his little brother. He's got to talk real big and, hey, who's taking care of your little sheep there? Now, no offense, little girls, okay? No offense. I should have said something else. That came out wrong. Okay. Okay, now, I will not live that one down for a while since two little girls live in my house. Okay. Now, notice, notice what else he accuses him of in 28. This is his brother saying, I know your pride and your insolence of your heart. For you have come down here to see the battle. You would think he was standing there the day that David was anointed king. You would think that he would have heard Samuel say, you're a man after God's own heart. You're chosen to be the king. And what does he do? He turns around and accuses this humble young man of pride. You're just down here. You want to sightsee a battle. You want to see all the action. It's just your pride that brings you down here, and it's your deceptive heart. Isn't it interesting that probably out of everybody on that battlefield that day, he was the most humble man, but yet he was the one they attacked and accused to be just the opposite. Again, I want to remind you, God doesn't see people the way man sees people. His older brother saw somebody completely different than God had seen. Humility. It's beautiful. It's powerful in the sight of God. But notice courage, and we're going to have to mention some things just very quickly and start bringing this lesson around to a close. Look with me still in that same chapter. In the 17th chapter, verse 11, do you see how a description of Saul and his men, when Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. Glance down, if you will, at verse 24. Notice this description. And all the men of Israel, when they saw the man, talking about when they saw Goliath, they fled from him. They were dreadfully afraid. But yet when David saw this very same situation, we just read verse 28 where the brother accuses him of pride and a deceptive heart. Look how he answers in 29. David said, what have I done now? Is there not a cause? 
Now, I know different translations have that. That's kind of difficult to translate there. And so some may read quite a bit different there. I like this translation here. And studying through it, I, I think this is pretty accurate translation here. Do you see what David is saying? They're looking at the enemy and they can't find enough courage and that's the second thing. We've got to have a courageous heart. And the courage isn't found in our own strength and our own might. The courage is found in trusting God. And so David is watching the enemy of God prevail against God's people. David can't understand how all these men, here it is, could let the cause of God be defeated. And so he's turning around and he's asking, isn't there a cause? If you read on, he even turns around to others and he asks the same thing. Isn't there a cause? In other words, I think what David is saying, isn't there a cause worth standing up for? Isn't there a cause worth going to battle for? Isn't there a cause that you would lay your life down for? I've got to ask myself that. When we go to school and we go to work tomorrow, isn't there a cause that's great enough to say it's more important than me as an individual? I'm going to make my stand no matter what the cost. I'd give my life for this cause. David, how do you have the strength to go before a giant? Number one, David would say, I'm going to go by the strength of the Lord. But number two, if I died for this cause, wouldn't that be a worthy cause? Friends, we're courageous when we see the strength of God and the fact that as long as we die with God, we're not defeated. If we're being mocked and standing with God, we're not defeated. If all the world stands separate to us and it's just us and God, we're not defeated. Us and God make a majority. Us and God make the most powerful resource that this world has ever known. David believed in the cause that was linked with God and it gave him tremendous courage. I want to remind you of the story in 2 Samuel, the 11th chapter. And as I'm reminding you of that, I'd like for you to turn to Psalms, the 51st chapter, and we'll extend the invitation. He not only had a humble heart and a courageous heart, but David had a broken heart. Do you remember the story in Psalms, in, in 2 Samuel, the 16th chapter, where he looked upon Bathsheba, he lusted after, invited her in, and, and they conceived a child. He had her husband, which was one of the mighty men, murdered. And what is amazing uh, to me, I'm sure it is to many of us, as we think about a man that had shown such a pure and a good heart, is not just the fact that he committed all of those sins, but what is amazing is that he did not even feel guilt until Nathan came and told him the story about the man who had huge flocks of sheep and he was a very rich man and then there was this one family that had this little lamb that they'd raised in their house they had a house lamb and and he he actually ate off of their table he, he actually was treated like a child and when the rich man had guests to come to their house he had his servant to go over and to take the poor people's lamb that was a pet and slaughter it instead of going out and getting one of his many now keep in mind who's david you remember the shepherd boy you remember the shepherd boy that would protect his sheep by grabbing up a bear or lion by his beard and slaying him with his hands? You think this story didn't hit the heart of David? Think how many times he had taken care of those little lambs. Think how many times he had gotten close to them. And you're telling me that there were some little kids and a rich neighbor killed their pet lamb? You remember David's words, that man shall be put to death. And Nathan said... You are the man. David hadn't heard that many times in his life. 
when there was time for somebody after God's heart to be anointed king, in other words, Samuel said to him, you are the man. When a whole army wouldn't stand up against one giant and there needed to be somebody to do it, by his actions, it was being said, David, you are the man. He had been the man that had risen up and stood with God and conquered enemies so many times and now he's being told he's the man. And he's on the opposite side of God. Psalms 51 shows us a picture of a broken man. And as we extend this invitation tonight, I want to ask you, when you sin... We all sin. When you sin, do you have a calloused heart that it really doesn't hurt very much? Do you find excuses? Do you find somebody else to blame? Do you realize that once David recognized what he did, do you realize all the people he could talk about that he hurt? Maybe he could have dreamt up excuses. Maybe he could have blamed her. Maybe he could have blamed others. But instead, we read things like in verse 4, against you, and you only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight. Now, David's not saying, I did not do anything against Uriah. I did not do anything against Bathsheba and their family. That's not the point he's making. The point he's making is, God, my greatest concern at this time is I've hurt you. My heart is broken because everything I've done was against you. Brethren, please get this. If you and I can do wrong and our heart doesn't break because of what it does to God, we're missing the whole picture of a relationship with God. When David realized he had destroyed his relationship with God, he was a broken man. His heart was broken. He's ready to take responsibility. He's ready to bow his head, take his broken heart to the ground, and cry out to God, Cry out to God. Look at verse 8. Cry out to God. Make me hear joy and gladness that the bones you have broken may rejoice. How did God break the bones? He was the one that did the sin. God broke the bones because He knew that God's justice would punish him for what he did. He knew that God's righteousness would crush his heart because he had defied the righteousness of God. Just as years earlier, Goliath had defied the children of Israel. And it was in that brokenness. He's not in blaming everybody else's business. He's not in, let me try to justify this. He's in this brokenness that he says, God, I've sinned against you. I want to know joy again. And here we go in verse 10. Create in me a clean heart man after God's own heart. God, I want to be able to wake up in the morning again and feel joy. I want to be able to look the man in the mirror 
and know that He's a man after your heart. God, I know all the wrong I've done. He can't go back and change it. He can't go back and relive it. But He wants to bring this heart that's in a thousand pieces and put it back in the hands of the one that can make it whole again. You know, when we're talking about objects, we call that restoration. See verse 12? Restore. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with your generous spirit. Tonight, does your heart, does your life need restoration? We can't do it on our own. We may have come to realize the wrongs, but only God can put it back together again. But He can only work with hearts that are humble. He can only work with hearts that trust Him enough to be courageous. And He can only work with hearts that feel the brokenness of sin. And they don't make excuses. They simply turn to Him to make it right. He says that He'll cleanse us in the waters of baptism if we're a believer that's willing to repent of sin and turn to Him and not ashamed, we're willing to confess Him before men. If we have been to the waters of baptism and we've added our Lord, but since we've left our Lord, He invites us to come back, not to be baptized again and again and again, but He does, He does command us to confess our faults one to another and to pray one for another. He does hold us responsible if we were to become a stumbling block to others. You see, God wants us to live a righteous life so that we can be a role model even for others. If we can help you in any way, come as we stand.